Hello guys, it is me, Known Wells, creator of Yumi Empathy. Today is episode six. Woohoo! We've made it to six. I am so pleased. Today's episode is another installment of Tony Time. Tony Time. Tony Time. Tony, Tony, Tony Time. Um, sorry about that. Uh, so moving on. Yes, today we are talking with Tony, my friend Tony, about PTSD. Uh, as we did in episode five with my guest Bernadette. If you haven't listened to that episode, please do go back and listen. It is amazing. Bernadette is a courageous human with a huge heart, and I love her deeply. She's she's so brave, and I'm just proud of her. So listen to her story about complex PTSD and her traumatic childhood and uh, just some great tips on when you're feeling isolated in your mental in your mental health. So just go back and listen to episode five. Today in episode six, I talked to Tony about how he interacts with his patients when it comes to PTSD, how he talks to them. And we get into a bunch of other things, of course, as we usually do in the Tony Time installments, but I hope you enjoy it. The disclaimer for the show is that You Me Empathy is for informational and or entertainment purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Also, I need to say that as it pertains to Anthony or Mikey, who I am speaking to on this episode, episode six, Anthony Romanke, a.k.a. Tony, Tony Time, is a California licensed marriage and family therapist, licensed by the Board of Behavioral Sciences, license number LMFT47805. Tony, a.k.a. Anthony Romanke, a.k.a. Tony Time, is a regular contributor to Yumi Empathy, as you guys know but he is not functioning as marriage and family therapist in this environment. Um, so that's the disclaimer. Um, so we're not sued because I'm just a silly boy who has a feely heart and wears his heart on his sleeve. And uh, I, um, I'm not a professional. So that's what the show is. It's about getting our hearts out there, talking about the stuff that matters and, being vulnerable and being open and and embracing empathy. So I guess that about does it. Uh, one thing I will say is please, 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 I'm trying to get the ratings and reviews up uh, higher in iTunes. So go, if you haven't rated and review the show, You Me Empathy in iTunes, go please, please do that. It would help out the show. It gets, gets uh, just more eyes and uh, hearts on Yumi Empathy. Uh, thank you so much for doing that. And without further ado, enjoy this episode, episode six of Yumi Empathy. La, 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 la. You, 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 
Welcome to episode six of You, Me, Empathy. Today's show, I am chatting again with my friend and psychotherapist, Tony, for Tony Time. Tony Time. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm okay. Are you really doing okay? I have a fluey voice. You do. My throat is hurty, and, uh... But that's okay. I'm I'm working through this. He is. He's pushing through, folks. Yes. Um, so today's show, we are uh, going to talk about PTSD. Um, in episode five, I spoke with my friend Bernadette Pierce about PTSD. And in this episode, I am chatting with Tony uh, about PTSD from his perspective from a mental health professional's perspective. So we're going to explore that a bit. We're going to talk about, well, let's just, let's just start. Let's just start. Let's just jump in. Let's just get into it. So um, do you have any questions for me? <laughs> well, I have flu brain. Yeah. He's got flu brain. So this isn't maybe the time to ask you about quantum physics. So the oh. principles of time. No, not yet. No, not yet. Not okay. Yet. Ask me tomorrow. Okay. I'll check back tomorrow. Okay. So, well, what did you think? I mean, you know, I get the wonderful benefit of getting to listen to the the episodes or the the interviews or whatever we want to call them after the fact. So, I, I get the wonderful benefit of sitting back and listening to the two of you have your chat. And so, how was it for you? Yeah, it was great. Um, I, I Bernadette is is so eloquent and sweet, and I just could talk to her forever. You know. One of the things, there was a couple of sort of standout points for me with, with the interview and we started talking, we started, you know, talking uh, at the, at the start of the show about how lately that I've been feeling um, sort of a, a burden on people, you know, like my sadness is a burden or my depression is a burden. And she was very sweetly empathetic in, in sort of relating to that aspect of mental health. and. Um, I guess I just wanted to bring that to the forefront because I, I think that it's a common thing for people. I think having mental illness can be, can it, it feels overwhelming at times. And um, when you have loved ones in your life, uh, friends, partners, etc., you know, it's going to naturally feel like it's going to be a burden on them. But, you know... After some sort of, after that conversation and, and chat with Jessica and, and other people, like, I just have to remind myself that, like, you know, they love me deeply and they wouldn't be with me if, you know, if, if my depression or anxiety was this burden that I, that I'm building up in my, in my head, you know? Oh, absolutely. Um, I love the episode and I loved hearing the two of you talk about your own personal experiences and and yeah I took a lot of that away from both of you in terms of listening to the two of you really kind of talk about your personal experiences and and that concern that I think comes with when we're in relationships with people and and how does you know our our relational dynamics our mental illnesses um, symptomology you know how does that then transfer into our relationships and and what's the impact on them and you know and even as you're talking now I'm hearing that idea of you know and 
the way I always kind of conceptualize this is through those early attachment experiences and our early caregiver experiences, you know, with the people who raised us, you know, when we kind of formed these relational templates about ourselves around those experiences, you know, so how well attuned were our caregivers? How well did they meet our needs? How well, you know, were they emotionally attuned and present? And, and you know, what were their capacities to be fully emotionally involved? And the takeaway from that, you know, and the way the brain's actually structurally developed around that template to we now then walk away with this belief about ourselves, which, you know, again, I hear clinically in my office quite often, which is these, you know, core distorted beliefs or these core, core, um, well, just a core belief, uh, if we think about cognitive behavioral psychology of this idea of, you know, I'm, for instance, you know, I'm too much for people or yeah. I'm a burden, um, my needs can never be met or, you know, I'm, I'm too needy, you know, people will never be able to to tolerate me, um, I'll engulf, I'll be too much. And, you know, and these, and then it's always interesting, I find, you know, the ways that that almost becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy at times, right? You know, how we act that out then around the other people. And, you know, I love the work in psychotherapy and helping people, you know, change those core beliefs. And, and what I say is, you know, developing new healthy core beliefs that are you know, far more accurate in my perspective than these very distorted type of beliefs that we grew up with. So, so it was fascinating to listen to the two of you and and hear, you know, how you both had kind of, you've both recognized, the, you know, this, this obviously within you and your relationships. And um, so, it was, yeah, it was very fascinating for me. Yeah, you know, um, you know, and, and stigma plays a huge sure. part of it. Like now that I'm thinking about it, like, you know, the portrayals, you know, of mental health in media and, 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 you know, our society is that it is a burden in some ways. Mm -hmm. Like there, there's, there's all these depictions that are sort of running through my brain right now. Yeah, of, what do you, what are you thinking? Well, I'm just like thinking of like, uh, people who are like sad and like, you know, like, oh, I'm gonna like, I don't know. It's just like, it's, it's like this weird perverted, like over dra dramatic, portrayal of people who have mental illness and that's that, that's like the sort of super stigmatized version sure and i think there's i just think there's a lot of that and i think that can get in your head too that, that starts to play like a character and sort of feels fuels your thinking that that you are that burden but yeah yeah i mean so if i'm hearing you it's kind of that idea that there's this mirror coming back to you through through media yeah. that is portraying mental health in a particular light. And so, the the message that you're receiving back is, well, you are a burden or, or this is really is overwhelming. And, you know, look at the negative impact that it's having on this person, you know, who we're portraying in this particular light. And I think there are granted I, you know i think this is the point that you're making too if it's it's media based then we're going to generally go for some extreme form of this particular issue right we're going to have some extreme type of of way that this particular symptomology is playing itself out and um you know and obviously that's not always the way that it plays out in real life but um but shock value i guess right or you know kind of some extreme form to make sure that we're getting viewers or we're making a point and uh and it can be a lot a lot more subtle and, um, but no, yeah, but I could certainly see where you would say there or experienced that as having, you know, a very negative type of impact, uh, you know, as again, as we talk about stigma here quite a bit. Yeah. And I think, you know, even for myself, like when it comes to feeling like a burden, like I, I almost even get to a point where I'm like romanticizing it, mm. you know, I, I have this like, you know, long streak of 
you know, wanting, you know, being the sort of tortured writer, That's and the tortured thinking, yeah. artist, right. you know, and, and, you know, I need to do it alone. And, you know, I, you know, and th- there's that sort of sure. ethos as well that sort of plays a role in, in that, I, I think a little bit. Um, and I think there's some value in that, but I, I think it, I think it can do damage in this regard for sure. Yeah. And I'm wondering too, in, in a scenario like that for people, it's, if that's the romanticized version of it, I still wonder how much that prevents the real needs from being met, right? You right. Know, so, although, it, you know, we can kind of dramatize it in this very romantic, maybe kind of uh, way, particularly if there's, a, you know, if it's a person who maybe is more creative, and yet you know, these real needs are being unmet, right? And yeah. so, it's this kind of chronic you know, cycle of, of maybe a downward type of spiral, not necessarily, but potentially. And real needs are going unmet, you know, and, and I actually thinking about this and thinking about PTSD and thinking about, you know, all the different peoples or all the different ways in which we've, we've thought of post-traumatic stress disorder and maybe even what we've learned about it from the media. And, you know, and I would say most people's idea of PTSD comes from, you know, returning uh, soldiers, you know, yeah. war veterans and so forth. People yeah, who have of course. Fought. I mean, that's kind of where we get the original idea of people who return from the war with, I think, what we used to call shell shock and, you know, different, you know, versions of that. And now really understanding that it's this, you know, not just reserved, obviously, for people who have who have been in war situations, although that's definitely very common uh, for people to come back with a post-traumatic stress type of experience. But, you know, there's a lot of ways in which we can experience post-traumatic stress. And there's a lot of ways in which I think it it impacts a lot of people who have certainly never been in, you know, again, (coughs) some war, you know, type of setting, but, you know, car accidents, traumatizing childhoods with abuse and, and, um, you know, a lot of different ways in which somebody can experience a threat to their life, threat to their safety. And, you know, what becomes so fascinating about this is what the brain basically ends up doing with that type of information and the way the brain reacts to that type of experience. And, and you know, and that's where we get this kind of chronic prolonged symptomology, I think, that, you know, today we know is post-traumatic stress. So, you know, I'm glad you brought up the, the military as, you know, our sort of understanding of PTSD in the context of of war sure right because that that is the common one that's the right. one we think of and you know we talked about it a bit on on the episode with bernadette and you know there's this how do i guess how do we what here's my question where where is the sort of research and the understanding of ptsd going and where is it moving beyond just sort of out of that context I, yeah, you know, I think it probably has evolved into a you know greater understanding. You know, since probably you know where a lot of researchers, clinicians, have worked with people returning from probably more specifically the Vietnam War, and you know people like Bessel van der Kook, who the two of you had referenced, you know, with his most recent book, The Body Keeps Score, which is absolutely amazing. You know, who you know he did a lot of early work you know, in the 70s, in the East Coast with these returning war veterans. And in addition to that work is he crossed over and was working with other people. And he started working with people who may have, you know, experienced a car accident, or he started working with people who had experienced, you know, maybe a rape or some other form of of violation. And recognizing the similarity of symptoms, you know, where there was this, this crossover of, 
you know, hypervigilance. There was a, a you know, a, a similar experience of dissociation and, you know, a, you know, a, a disconnection in a sense from the experience where it's, you know, whatever it is that we are experiencing in the moment is so overwhelming that, that the, you know, there's literally a shutdown and you, you know, you, you hear women talk about this and, and, you know, certainly men as well, but, you know, where they've actually, they feel like they've disconnected from their body under certain circumstances, you know, and recognizing that it, you know, through a lot of this work that it, it just wasn't happening with war veterans, returning war, you know, war veterans, it was happening with other people who were experiencing other forms of, of, you know, highly traumatizing um, type of events. And I think since that time, you know, since working with, starting with that, the war veteran population and working through, you know, we've really started to understand that, you know, tra- trauma happens, you know, in a lot of ways. And, you know, trauma in and of itself is basically something that happens to us in which it's really just more than we can handle. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, brain-based uh, type of things that occur in that process, which is for our safety. You know, I mean, you know, the, the brain is the most amazing thing. The more I learn about it, the more I'm fascinated by it in that, you know, it's, it's there to protect and it's there to ensure our survival. And, you know, and if one of the ways that we're going to get through a certain situation is to basically shut down from experiencing whatever, you know, shut down today, live tomorrow, you know, yeah. kind of ideas is what the brain is basically doing. And so, um, it's, so as the, you know, as the work kind of evolves from what we, you know, we are, we learned in the seventies, you know, through the eighties, through the nineties. And again, you have people like Peter Levine, you have, you know, Bessel van der Kook and, and others who are doing amazing work around this this particular area of trauma and post-traumatic stress so um so it, and then now as we're understanding a lot of neuroscience and again the way the brain reacts to these traumas um i really you know foresee this as a f- particular field of study i think which we're going to be getting a lot of really great information um you know right now and in the you know years to come is is complex ptsd part of that yeah absolutely you know i mean it's can you can you maybe because um that was brought up in, in our conversation and, you know, it, she used it to script, to, to describe, to describe her experience, sure. uh, you know, and Bernadette's experience, you know, in her sort of early childhood and, and, you know, living with a mother who had PTSD herself and, right. and having this child, you know, having an abusive father, alcoholic father, and, and having this experience where she couldn't feel like she could be herself at all, you yeah, know? Right. Uh, what, how do you, I mean, it's not in the DSM yet. Correct. How do you, how would you describe complex PTSD? Yeah, it's, you know, it's. it's complex? A, yeah, it's a very interesting, you know, process. One of which I think, you know, there's the potential for a lot of people to experience because I think what you're looking at in, in a situation where it's complex PTSD is, you know, you're looking at somebody who has um, had experienced you know, maybe from early childhood, you know, specific type of dynamics, relational experiences in which, as again, the two of you were referencing, you know, maybe not the safest of experiences. Yeah. You know, maybe again, there's abuse, there's neglect, there's a lack of emotional attunement, empathic attunement and so forth. And so, there's already this, you know, development of, of you know, self-structures that are somewhat self-protective mm-hmm. that are already occurring. And there's already a disconnection, you know, in, in terms of a, a protective defended self versus a authentic real self that's 
not having the benefit of developing, you know, because of the the social environment that the, you know, that the child's being raised upon. And then, you know, again, potentially, yeah, a parent with a mental, you know, illness or a substance abuse problem or, or financial stresses and so forth. And, and as we kind of develop these protective type of relational responses, uh, both intrapsychically and interpersonally. And then if you throw a trauma on top what of that. What is intrapsychically? Oh, intrapsychic, you know, so basically what's what's happening within the self. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. Versus what's happening in the dyadic, you know, nature of a relationship. What starts to happen is, you know, again, if you throw a trauma now on top of that and, you know, a car accident, or, you know, a rape, a, you know, sexual violation of another sort, um, maybe it's, you know, you've gone off to war and you already have these, you know, defense mechanisms in place that were, were there because of these maybe unsafe circumstances that you grew up in, then you have this very complex type of process happening. So, yeah. it's not like you've just, you have this very healthy, secure attachment. You have this wonderful, you know, we call it good enough parenting experience growing up. And so, there's- <laughs> You call it good enough? Yeah, we call it good enough. Or, okay. it, you know, psychoanalytic term, the good enough parent, the good enough mother. Okay. And, you know, so, it's this idea of, you know, we're, we're not going for perfection. We're just going for good enough. And- uh, you know, something happens. Generally, what we have found is that, you know, the, the p- capacity for resilience could be fairly high and the capacity for adjustment to what's happened can be fairly high. I mean, you know, so there's the probability that somebody might get through something that could be traumatizing to another person. They may be okay. They may not necessarily come through that traumatized. That's why not everybody who returns from a horrible situation necessarily has post-traumatic stress disorder, um, but some will. And, and again, I think it really does talk about this, this, this process of complex, you know, complexity. But again, somebody may have had a wonderful, you know, secure attachment, great, good enough parenting, get in a horrible car accident and certainly, you know, still have post-traumatic stress. Um, but again, probably not complex post-traumatic stress, but certainly, you know, um, you know, could be a very frightening, a frightening experience. So, definitely possible. So... So, it differs from person to person, really. It really could differ from person to person, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's why, you know, it becomes complex is because all these other type of factors potentially play a part. Um, you know, in terms of at least my belief, I've, we all have different temperaments. You know, I think we're all wired differently. And I think some people have a nervous system that's a little bit more, you know, um, high wired. You know, some people are a little bit more low wired. And so, I think that's going to impact, you know, somebody different. So, there's, there's so many different factors. Uh, resources, you know, financial resources, emotional resources, and, um, you know, support, different forms of support. So, there's a lot of different factors that, that play into how well somebody may or may not come through a trauma. Yeah. Hmm. So, it's a very, it, you know, it's, it's very complex and, you know, and I think working with people with post-traumatic stress, um, you know, I think is, is a very kind of specialized field and I think, it, you know, really does require a lot of, you know, education, experience and, and guidance because it's, you know, it, it can be a very, you know, complex, hence the term, you know, process. So, what, uh, what is your experience with PTSD in terms of, uh, you know, treating your patients? Well, it's interesting. Um, and a great question was as I was listening to you and Bernadette, you know, process in, in your episode and listening to the ways in which, you know, you both kind of expressed um, emotional regulation or emotional dysregulation. You know, I tend to see a significant amount of that in my setting, in my clinical practice. I'm a certified sex addiction therapist and, you know, so I, I work with, you know, men who have compulsive sexual behaviors 
And what I find is, you know, it's not uncommon for these people to have experienced trauma growing up. And the sexual behavior initially is about, you know, emotional soothing. It's about emotional escapism. It's about, um, you know, shutting down, you know, or, or trying to manage the emotional dysregulation and emotional distress that they feel by, you know, engaging in a particular behavior that will give them these, you know, wonderful release of feel-good chemicals and so <coughs> forth. And so, what I tend to see in my office specifically is, you know, people who may have not done any treatment, you know, with the trauma that they've experienced, but now have some form of compulsive behavior that they're having to deal with. So, basically, they found their own bandage to this injury that they they had and you know it worked for a while you know but ultimately it ended up creating more problems than obviously you know it, it had attended to and and initially it became a you know again just kind of a band-aid but then became problematic on its own it still if we're going to go with this analogy you know became very infected and it became very um problematic underneath the band-aid yeah um and that's kind of now what we're dealing with so you know so i tend to deal with you know people who are now engaged in you know a, you know really emotionally regulated dysregulated type of behavior and and again unlike or just like post-traumatic stress or trauma you know you tend to get um, um nervous systems and people who are very emotionally dysregulated and so they're living life with a lot of hypervigilance. you know they're living life with a lot of um, you know, their nervous system is very upregulated and, you know, and so they're looking for calming, they're looking for soothing and it's easy to find those in substances. It's easy to find those in, in sex or sex, you know, compulsive sexual behaviors, um, you know, trying to basically regulate this system. And, you know, Bernadette mentioned uh, DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, which is, you know, one of the tools and interventions people are using now to help people learn to self-regulate and to really, um, you know, learn to calm their nervous systems, mindfulness, you know, mm -hmm. and yoga. I mean, you know, these are wonderful practices in helping people also learn to downregulate, um, you know, basically learn to calm the brain, sit with emotional distress, as opposed to go into any really, un, you know, unhealthy behaviors that people may have had, you know, alcohol use, substance abuse, sex, um, overspending. I mean, there's a lot of different ways people can um, attempt to, you know, heal thyself, so to speak. So, <laughs> so when you have these patients who have, you know, you know, potentially a trauma and they are sort of soothing it with, you know, uh, you know, sexual, uh, you know, proclivities, I don't know the right sure. word. Uh, what, how are you, how are you treating that? Like how, what are you, are you working with them on DPT type of, you know, activities or how are you yeah there's a lot of work that goes into that and you know initially if you're working with somebody who is coming in with let's say compulsive sexual behavior you know one of the first things that you're working with with that particular person is you know to get sobriety and and you know around their behaviors and so you're the you know the first job is to you know to get them to stop doing the behaviors that they don't want to be doing mm -hmm. and you know and again some of these behaviors can become you know extremely problematic you know threatening to um you know, there may be potentially legal problems. Maybe there's financial problems, uh, you know, maybe, a, you know, potentially a divorce situation. I mean, there's, you know, all kinds of, you know, uh, problematic behaviors that might bring somebody finally into therapy to deal with this. So, so the first thing is, you know, we're really going to work on getting that person to stop the behaviors that they're doing. And, the, you know, the, as a certified sex addiction therapist uh, through the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals, Patrick Carnes developed a 30-task model that we work from, and that is a process to get the client sober. 
and you know and get him into recovery. And sober just means stop the stop the behavior. behavior. Yeah, yeah, trying to extinguish the behavior, the yeah. the unwanted behavior, the problematic behavior from you know the client's perspective. And, you know, and, and so, you know, a lot of the initial work is really focused on that and really getting the client stable, you okay. know, and it's, you know, trying to do any real depth of work, you know, maybe trying to get underneath the traumas or trying to get, you know, into the, the deeper attachment wounding or, you know, but, you know, trying to get to the deep work before you get a person sober is, is going to be really difficult. And, you know, potentially if this has been their defense mechanism and their survival mechanism, uh, to manage their emotions because of experienced trauma, you don't necessarily want to come in and start doing deep emotional work if this has been their defense against right. experiencing the dark that. arts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's, um, you know, and again, I think that's why working with this population is, is very, um, you know, you, you need to really get some some quality education, you know, around being able to work with this population because it's, uh, it's a very, you know, complex treatment process. So eventually, you know, once again, you've get, you've gotten somebody sober and, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, or hopefully good enough stability around that. Then, you know, there's some more interpersonal type of work that you can do and work around, <coughs> work around the traumas, work around the interpersonal nature of the person's um, emotional regulatory system. And, um, you know, so it tends to be very long-term work, you know, yeah. to really get somebody, I think, to a place that they want to be. And yet, you know, it can be very transformational. It's sort of heartbreaking to me. Well, it is heartbreaking to me. It's not sort of heartbreaking. Um, just a little. Just saying. a little bit it's heartbreaking, just, just for some segment of the population. Sure. <laughs> no, uh, it's heartbreaking to me to think about the, you know, to use my example or my experience, people creating heart guards. You know, sure. I created my heart guard and that was sort of my mechanism to protect myself. And, you know, it was what I could do at the time. And, and, uh, you know, I didn't maybe have the best systems in place to, to create something better for myself or more healing or, uh, or healthy. And it, you know, to think about others just going through that same sort of scenario or different experiences, creating similar sort of like behaviors that will eventually wreak havoc on them as adults. Like that's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. How do you? Yeah, you know, listening to to the episode and, and hearing you use heart guard actually stood out for me and, and was really impactful. And I loved it, by the way. I loved the term. And I thought it was so descriptive of, I think, what we do as young children to survive. Yeah. And I, and I, I have so much compassion around that, you know, I, I, and, and I think maybe that's where my heart then really comes into my, my therapy with clients is because I recognize the heart guard they needed mm-hmm. to survive their childhood circumstances. And I understand the necessity of the heart guard and I understand what it was they were needing to protect themselves from. And so, you know, my empathy and my compassion just goes out, you know, um, you know, as I sit with these people, it, because again, understanding that, you know, we're, we're trying to survive in a setting in which we don't have a lot of skills yet developed. Mm. And whatever it is, uh, uh, you know, adaptively that we're doing to survive, and it, it can be dissociative. I mean, you know, we can learn to dissociate and go into fantasy, which is very common. We can learn to just not feel, you know, we can we can learn to become very disconnected from ourselves and simply just shut down, which I feel like a lot of my therapy is actually having people become reconnected with themselves. 
And a lot of that is through, um, you know, focusing even on body, you know, focusing on um, body awareness. Yeah. Talk about that because um, our buddy Bessel yeah. <laughs> talks about that a lot. Yeah. Talk about the body awareness aspect of PTSD and... Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's amazing. And I think this is so much where trauma work is going is, is and has been for some time. I and mean, there's, again, great practitioners out there who have been doing body-oriented somatic healing for some time. Peter Levine's written, a, you know, phenomenal, well, phenomenal books. But one of my favorite is um, Waking the Tiger. I believe that's the correct one. I hope I'm referencing that correctly. I think it's Lion. Waking the Lion. Waking the Lion. No, line. I don't know. No. <laughs> I know Tiger's in there. I think it's, but it's, you know, it's, Talking about, you know, and he, you know, illustrates in the book from an animal's perspective, this idea of, you know, flight, fight, or freeze. Hmm. And the survival aspects, you know, that that's used in nature, you know, by these animals, you know, in which it is a, you know, nervous system-based response to this flight, flight, or freeze type of response. And it's a survival-based tool. And it's fascinating for me to understand, you know, and, and I think, you know, again, as all the research continues to kind of help us and guide us in understanding the body and how the trauma of these experiences that we're referencing today can so be stored into the, our bodies. And, but we're so generally disconnected from our bodies, you know, and a lot, I, th I believe a lot of therapy in the past with somebody who had gone through a trauma, the belief was, well, we need to get them to talk about the trauma. You know, mm -hmm. we need to mm -hmm. take them back to the trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think we're at a point now where there's a recognition that, you know, that, that that itself can be very traumatizing. Right. To actually bring somebody back into their trauma and recognizing now that a lot of the work is focusing on, you know, again, helping a person become emotionally regulated, but also focusing on body awareness and, and you know, and bringing people back in connection to their body and, and helping them understand that, you know, you know, hence the title of Bessel's book, right? The body keeps score, mm -hmm. you know, this mm -hmm. idea that there is a, a, you know, your body is a recording device and your brain is definitely a recording device. And so, although you may not have necessarily an awareness of things that have happened, you know, you do have this thing called implicit memory in which the, the brain still records and, and you still have a file, so to speak, um, about this experiences and your brain is still developed an adaptive strategy around that file. And, and you probably potentially might be living out the body's defense and the provide, you know, the body's survival around that. And so, but again, we are seeing a lot of people, you know, do more somatic, you know, body-based type of training. Um, there's equine therapy that people are doing with horses, which, um, you know, seems to, you know, from what I understand, be extremely healing. And, and again, you know, also just, you know, body-based, body-sensory-based type of work. And um, so, it's, it's really exciting. I think we're on the forefront of some really kind of exciting uh, work that, again, is going to be very, I think, mindful-based, you know, yoga-based, body-based. And, uh, you know, really helping people, you know, downregulate their nervous systems, find a way to seek this emotional regulation, you know, basically to be able to sit through distress without becoming so emotionally dysregulated or an inability to manage the emotions so that we don't go to anything that's destructive, you know, or unhealthy ultimately. So, yeah. And I like that. And because it, it seems like it's more looking at the whole self, Correct. right? body and mind right. and 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 recognizing the fact that that uh traumas you know ptsd affect the physical body uh, as well as the mind and, absolutely you know, and so um well you know I, even as you mentioned that i was thinking about you know sitting in in my clinical practice and you know sometimes if 
you know, I see somebody who's just so upregulated, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of times I'll start to feel that in my body, you know, yeah. I'm learning to pay attention to that, you know, in the room, how am I experiencing this person? What am I sensing in my body? What am I feeling? And if I'm starting to recognize that I'm taking very, you know, short, shallow breaths and I'm feeling very uptight, you know, to kind of maybe bring that experience into the room and be able to talk about it. And even, you know, maybe being able to stop and say, you know, I'm wondering if we can take a deep breath at this moment and just stop for a second and kind of center ourselves, ground ourselves. And, you know, I have found that it seems to have been extremely helpful with clients reporting that, you know, once they're able to do that, that they, they kind of have this reconnection experience or, you know, they may find, you know, an emotion that they, they weren't aware of that they were feeling or they may now become aware of, oh, I didn't know how, you know, tense I was feeling in my shoulders or in my neck. And, you know, we'll talk about that for a little bit and, you know, well, you know, let's sit with that for a second and, you know, let's focus on that area. And, you know, it's it's been fairly amazing. It's been it's pretty remarkable. That's awesome. I used to write breathe on my hand. Yes. Like for ages, I, yeah. I would write like in pen, like right, right on my left hand by my thumb and uh, just remind myself to breathe, you know, for yeah. that exact same purpose. Because I, I recognized in my, in my physical self that when I did take... Uh, take a moment to breathe deep breath in deep breath out and really sort of not think about anything yeah. else let everything go it's it's very you know it's meditative it's very it's so calming. therapeutic calming yeah yeah it really i you know it's it's probably one of the simpler things you know that any of us can do is just stop you know if we're feeling really stressed if we're feeling really uptight um you know dysregulated just you know just just stressed and to be able to stop and just take 30 seconds to breathe and, you know, focused breathing, you know, making sure that we're taking deep, you know, deep breaths and, you know, and, and just being very intentional and purposeful about, you know, observing ourselves as we're, you know, and being very intentional about the type of breathing that we're taking. Um, you know, I've found that to be, you know, just so remarkably centering, grounding and really help people, you know, get, you know, in touch emotionally with, yeah. with maybe what they weren't experiencing. I've even had clients stop and just be so surprised, you know, that they were just, I didn't even know I was in that state at all, uh -huh. you know, but yeah. now that I've stopped and I've breathed, I realized I was really uptight or, you know, I was feeling this and I, you know, I, so it's, it's really, really the simplest thing that just seems to have remarkable results. It sometimes takes, you know, and, you know, if you're the per person who feels like, oh, I didn't realize I was in that state. Right. Like, that's okay. Right. Like, sometimes it takes another person to call you out and that's Absolutely. okay because, you know, we all get in our own heads and oh, absolutely don't realize what path we're taking emotionally, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and that's always, again, what I find so fascinating about the therapeutic relationship or, you know, an interpersonal, you know, didactic type of relationship is, you know, is that feedback that we get from another person, right? Who's observing us, who's yeah. experiencing us. And I think, again, that's one of the, you know, great benefits of psychotherapy is the ability to sit with another person who is emotionally, you know, empathically present and attuned. And to be able to, you know, share with, you know, with that person, like, I'm feeling really anxious. I'm wondering if you're feeling the same thing or, you know, I've been noticing that you've been taking really, you know, shallow breaths or you haven't stopped talking for the last 10 minutes. And, you know, I feel like, you know, maybe what if we just stopped for a second and, and took a breath? Um, so, you know, having, I think, somebody attuned to what we're going through, I think, makes, you know, a huge difference. So, totally. So, you have to have Jessica's and… right you know other yeah, people exactly <laughs> um you you mentioned the Bessel book yeah. uh what other do you would you recommend any other resources to help people you know learn more about ptsd 
Well, yeah, I mean, Bessel's book for sure. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I can't recommend that one enough. Um, and again, that's Bessel van de Kook, uh, The Body Keeps Score. I mean, just, I think I'm rereading it for like the third or fourth time. I mean, it's... And I think that was the one Bernadette said she was yeah, reading. Yeah, and she yeah. was reading as well. Yeah. I mean, it, it is just absolutely an amazing book. So thick. I'd like to with, read that. Yeah, with, with just wonderful research and clinical experience and practical experience. Um, so that, you know, definitely that again, Peter Levine, I highly recommend, you know, um, and again, I think, believe it's waking the tiger was, but he has others as well, but I love that book. Um, so those are definitely the two that I, I highly recommend that, that people read regarding this particular issue. Um, Alexander Katahakis has a book, uh, it's called affect regulation and I think sexual compulsivity, uh, once again, Alexandra Katahakis. And, and again, that's for people who are, you know, probably dealing with compulsive sexual behavior. But again, it looks at it from a perspective of, of uh, emotional dysregulation. Um, I mean, if, if somebody really wanted to geek out kind of on everything that we're talking about, um, Dr. Alan Shore has written a lot of great books on uh, emotional regulation and dysregulation. And I had one other come into my mind, and uh, Luis uh, Cozzolino, Luis Cozzolino, has written a lot of great books recently on, on neuroscience and psychotherapy, Daniel Siegel. Um, I think that should keep everyone busy for <laughs> 10 years. <maybe. laughs> yeah, that's good. And I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to include all those links in the show notes. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention, and, and you mentioned it briefly earlier, is one of the points that Bernadette and I were chatting about early on in our in our interview is just the mental health uh, systems in place, and yeah. particularly in Australia where she's at in Perth. And we were just talking briefly about just the you know how's it compare here. And I was mm. you know I'm obviously very ignorant. Where are we at with sort mm. of PTSD research and? Um, you had mentioned earlier that, you know, you're excited to see where things are going and, and things are on a good path, but maybe explain that a little bit more. Yeah. I, yeah the first thought that came to my head was, you know, I, I wish I knew. Okay. Um, I mean, I think you're I, fired. I'm fired. I know this was, uh, <laughs> you're my expert. I know so much for the expert, right? <laughs> so, you know, I, I mean, one thing I'll say, you know, when I heard Bernadette talk about, you know, her experiences was, it was shocking. And, and, you know, very dismaying, yeah. you know, to hear about. I feel for her. Yeah, deeply. part of the mental health system that she's had to work with. Yeah. That was, you know, disappointing to say the least. I I think part of my lack of knowledge maybe in this area is is because of my private practice clinical setting uh -huh. basis. So, I work, you know, in a very different type of setting than Bernadette does, irrespectively of the fact that she's in Australia and I'm here in the United States of America. But um, you know, so I tend to see a, you know, part of the population who's generally higher functioning, who, you know, has the capacity to, to benefit from, you know, a single psychotherapy session per week. Yeah. And so, so I think the type more of population, area. You know, more fluent area and so yeah. forth. So where I think, she, you know, she's seen um, people who generally are, you know, in, in maybe lower resourced type of areas, um, Maybe they have, you know, financial restraints. Sure. Maybe there's um, high crisis, you know, type of issues. And, you know, what's any, you know, government-based or systemic-based, you know, what's their ability to to manage everything that they're trying to manage? And I'm sure there's 
they're, you know, having financial resource struggles, which yeah, I imagine we're probably having here as well. But I've never worked in those settings. So I think that's where I'm, I'm, I'm really lacking in my ability to really kind of speak to those settings, particularly. Sure. Um, but one of the things I'd be interested in knowing is, is, um, you know, I wonder what the VAs are doing here, you know, mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. relationship to post traumatic stress, how are they managing it? What are they learning? What are they doing with the data and the information that they're collecting? How are people like Bessel van der Kook and Peter Levine using that information? Or are they, again, pulling from their more, um, in, you know, the, the type of institution work they do and clinical private work they do as well? Um, so, you know, it'd be interesting to know exactly what, you know, in spite of their, you know, 30, 40 years of experience in history, how else are they pulling their information today? So. Probably didn't help you at all, but um, that's all I got. <laughs> no, that's fine. It uh, you know it uh, humanizes yourself in the eyes of the listener. So. Well, good, good. Yeah, yeah in I, the ears of the listener, I should yeah. say. And, and when we say expert, we do the air quotes, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. well, you are the resident well, expert right, here well, on you know. Empathy. You are the you have the lack you know. of better term. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well. I think that does it, unless you have anything more to say you want uh, to say on PTSD. No, I, I mean, I, you know, again, you know, maybe just the caveat or the, or not caveat. That's not the proper use of that term, I don't think. Um, maybe just the, I'd like to promote that if anybody's, you know, dealing again with, with this particular issue or any other similar or any other type of mental health, you know, illness that, you know, they certainly reach out to get help. Yeah. Um, and, you know, don't suffer alone. And, you know, there are, there are mental health professionals and people out there trained to, you know, help people in, in all forms of disorders and, and issues. And, you know, again, based on, you know, what you've created here with You, Me, Empathy is this idea that, you know, obviously we want people to get better. We want people to yeah. live happy, joyful lives. And we want to make sure that people are getting, you know, the most fulfillment that they possibly can out of their life. And, you know, it's... Um, you know, my heart hurts. I think like your heart hurts when I know that somebody's hurting and somebody's feeling isolated and maybe depressed and maybe overwhelmed um, and maybe, you know, distressed and, and, you know, and, and hopeless maybe even. And so I just, you know, I want everybody to feel that, you know, we care, we're listening and, and we just hope that they get the help they need. So. Yeah. Isn't he a sweetie? Aww. He's such a sweetie. Aww. Yes. Listeners, you are not a burden. Uh, you are not a burden here, and you are not a burden in the eyes of your loved ones. I promise you that. Okay, that's that about does it with this episode, episode six of You Me Empathy. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Say goodbye, Tony. Bye, Tony. <laughs>